Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Rob Corbin, and I serve as one of the elders here at Trinity. And uh, it's my honor and privilege to be able to share the word uh, with you today. So we're going to look at uh, uh, some verses from Luke chapter 10. And if you have your Bible and you want to turn there, we'll be looking at uh, some verses from there in just a few moments. Um, in our study in Matthew that Pastor Ben is leading us through, we've been looking at uh, Jesus' blueprint for the building of his church. And uh, in Matthew 16, we saw how Jesus, his, his plan for the laying of his foundation in the church, and it was built on two key responses from us, our confession and our commitment. And in our confession, we're responding to Jesus' question put forward in Matthew 16, and you, who do you say that I am? And we as his followers, who have come to see and treasure him for all that we've discovered him to be, cry out with Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we join John the Baptist to declare before others, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, arising out of a heart that believes that he died for our sin, and that God has raised him from the dead, forever settling that sin and death have been conquered and that eternal life with God is now ours. That's our confession. That's the confession upon which Jesus' house, his church is built. And from that confession and on the basis of that confession, we hear his call to commitment. And it's also relayed in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever will lose his life, for my, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This commitment is a call to full-time followership of Christ. Whether we earn our living in full-time vocational ministry or in the secular workplace. Regardless of the career path, whether I'm a pastor or a realtor, whether a missionary or a full-time mom, all of us must respond to this call to wholehearted pursuit of ministry in his name. Whether it's among the church gathered or the church scattered, we're called to be salt and light in the world. He calls us to abandon selfish pursuits to lose our life for his sake, to seek first his kingdom, to be in right relationship with him and be about what he is about in this world. To seek first his kingdom, to have his priority, the extension of his reign in this fallen world is our priority in all of our life pursuits. That is where his call to commitment is worked out. And so I'd like us to consider for a few minutes this morning the, the why behind our commitment. What is that which really drives us to pursue the ministry we feel Jesus is calling us to? And I think we always bring a mixed bag of motives to Jesus when he calls to us. There's faith, but there's also a huge dose of unbelief. There's 
courage, but alongside there's quite a bit of fear and insecurity. There's selflessness, but we're acutely aware that self still takes up a lot of room in that bag. What do we want to experience, to feel, to see as a result of our giving up our lives for Jesus? He said, if we give up our lives for his sake, we will find it. What do we hope to find? What is the return on investment, the ROI that we hope to see in our pursuit of ministry in his name? I think all of us come to this place of commitment, at least in part because we want our lives to count. We want to make a difference in kingdom terms. We hate the thought of wasting our lives on things or pursuits that don't matter in light of eternity. Hearing the well done, good and faithful servant from the Lord of the universe is very compelling to us. And it's right there in that desire for our lives to count that a subtle, dangerous and debilitating shift in the why of our ministry, ministry pursuit can take place in our hearts. And this subtle, this, this shift can be so subtle that we can, it can happen without our really realizing it. I'm talking about the joy in ministry subtly and slowly displacing the joy in knowing Jesus as primary in our heart's gaze. Fulfillment in ministry, having that joyful experience that my life counts, that I'm being used of God and making a difference for his kingdom, subtly replaces Jesus as the source of fulfillment for me. I think we see Jesus addressing this and warning about this in his commissioning and debriefing of the 72 in Luke chapter 10. It's the passage that contains Luke's version of the, the famous missions text. The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into his harvest. And here in Luke 10, 1 through 16, Jesus commissions and sends out the 72 to preach the good news of the kingdom, to perform ministry as his envoys with his power and with his authority. But I want to take particular notice of the debriefing of these 72 when they return from the mission in verse 17. So if you'll look in your Bibles at verse 17, we'll start reading there. It says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And we can certainly understand the exhilaration these 72 sent ones had as the first 16 verses of Luke 10 uh, make clear. They're called the soul captivating purpose. They're endowed with incredible otherworldly power and authority. They're entrusted with a message of kingdom hope and healing redemption, vested with such status that to reject these sent ones and, the me and their message was to reject the sovereign God of the universe. They are heavenly envoys endowed with Jesus' power and authority, and great things happened. Even the demons are subject to us. 
the even underscores it was the pinnacle of their ministry success, at least in their minds. On top of all kinds of ministry success, even the forces of darkness were literally subject to us, Jesus, in your name. Jesus recognizes the victory that they shared. Look at verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus recognizes the significance of what they reported. This is a significant advance against the kingdom of darkness. What they had experienced was a D-Day landing against the enemy. Jesus recognized their work as real indication of Satan's ultimate overthrow. And then he reinforces the assurance of his power and authority bestowed on them in verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. We can certainly consider to what degree this is literal or metaphorical. We can certainly see in the book of Acts the literal aspect. But I certainly think your seed will crush the serpent's head where the Lord God was picturing Satan's ultimate overthrow through Jesus and his followers in Genesis 3.15 as certainly part of what he had in mind when he was sharing this. Talk about a ministry high. There's nothing like following Jesus in faith, ministering in his name in faith, and seeing him come through with his power and authority through you and I to bring soul-saving faith, redemptive healing, change lives, and to put Satan back on his heels. The 72 were exhilarated. They were riding high on ministry success. And it wasn't due to their clever strategizing and machinations that pulled this off. They experienced God big time through their efforts. The joy that comes when you experience God working through you is an awesome high. It's like a pure, clean, heavenly fix. Witnessing, seeing, feeling, knowing that God is present with you and working through you and seeing the effects, the impact of that God-supplied grace through your efforts. It doesn't get any better than that. What an awesome high. And it's right there that the subtle, debilitating danger lies for the ministry high to become the focus and drive in our hearts. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the ground of your fulfillment. This is the ground of your worth. This is the ground of your identity and your significance. This is the captivating focus of your heart, the ground of sustaining joy and healthy focus in ministry, that God has laid hold of you and made you his own, that you are his and he is yours 
that the creator of the universe has brought you into intimate relationship with himself through Jesus. This relationship with God that has not a thing to do with your performance, with your image, with your reputation, with your cleverness, with your usefulness. Just you and I being a simple child of his. Look how Jesus continues in verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In our study in Matthew that Ben has been leading us through, I, I've been struck by how Jesus would often point to children as the way for us to view ourselves, especially when it comes to our estimation of ourselves in terms of our significance and our worth, our greatness. And uh, in Matthew 18, 1 to 4, we just saw it a few weeks ago, when the issue of the disciples' status of greatness came up, how did Jesus respond? Look at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Mark and Luke and their accounts of this exchange say that this exchange was instigated because there was an argument among the disciples as to which of them were to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so how did Jesus respond? And calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. As long as becoming great is the driving motivation among his disciples, they are on the wrong track. And Jesus says that they, we, have to completely turn around and become like children with simple, trusting, unpretentious, transparently needy faith. The one who humbles himself like a child, Jesus says, is the greatest in the kingdom that really counts. Becoming like a child not in innocence, but in their simple, transparent, unpretentious neediness, transparent openness, no putting on of airs, no image consciousness, simply trusting, openly needy, simple humility, contented to rest in God's shadow. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. God has laid hold of you and made you his own. The creator of the universe has brought you into intimate relationship with himself through Jesus in spite of your performance and my performance that's always so tainted by our sin. Rejoice in your relationship with God that has not a thing to do with our performance. How good we look, what our reputation is, how clever we are, how useful we are. 
none of that. Just us being simple children, children of his, unassuming, unpretentious, simply needing, nothing to offer, resting in his arms, treasuring that relationship, knowing him and being loved by him as the true and certain rock-solid foundation of our identity and the primary pursuit of our heart, seeking him, surrendering to his love, listening to him, loving him, trusting him, following him day by day, moment by moment, wherever that leads. Relationship with him is the ground. It's the posture of Mary before Jesus versus Martha, which also appears in this very chapter. Mary enthralled with Jesus. And Martha's rushing around working for him. Relationship with him is the ground. It's the captivating focus of our heart. It is the fountain, the wellspring of everything else. Ministry in his name is the outflow. It is always secondary. It cannot be the ground. But the joy, the exhilaration of the ministry high can be very addicting. And the shift in our hearts can be so subtle. I succumb to that shift where my heart's gaze and driving ambition shifted away from knowing him to using him. Where the ground of my worth, my sense of significance shifted to the evidence that God was using me, the evidence from my ministry that I was making a difference, and I burned out. I came to Orlando in 2010, bruised, beat up, and burned out after 30 years of ministry, serving as a missionary in Latin America and then as a pastor. Because the joy of ministry, getting that ministry high, little by little replaced knowing Jesus as the primary gaze of my heart. I came to Orlando and I didn't know who I was anymore. I had become addicted to that pure, clean, heavenly fix of experiencing God through my efforts. Like seeing the countenance of a woman with whom my wife and I had been sharing the gospel literally transformed before me as I saw the light of faith ignite in her heart. Realizing I was witnessing as I was preaching to her, to them, to this group, I was witnessing the moment of regeneration, the miracle of new birth, and that God had used me to be a channel of his grace toward her. That's exhilarating. Nothing better in terms of our experiences, our, our service, or being at a lake to conduct a baptismal service for people who had given their life to Christ. And with a shoreline full of our church parishioners and neighbors and seekers lining the shoreline, and I'm preaching to them from the lake, just like Jesus. And, and then being able to baptize them 
knowing and feeling that I had a part, a significant part in this life-changing event in their lives. Or preaching on a Sunday morning and being so caught up in what God had shown me in the text and feeling his enabling presence and seeing rapt attention of the congregation, witnessing God at work as I shared his word, hearing from people how God had used that word in their lives, left me feeling so worthwhile. It reassured me I was making a difference. It was a wonderful feeling. God was using me. And the gratitude of those I served increasingly became more evidence that I sought. Gratitude for my preaching and leadership. And then there was admiration. And then respect. The people I served were happy with me. They appreciated my leadership. I was valuable. I was making a difference. I could see the return on the investment. And I liked it. Sunday mornings became a focal point, my primary means to get my heavenly fix. I needed to prove myself to myself once again. I was on once again, and I had to deliver the goods. I was up to the plate, and I had to hit it out of the park to get that fix, to feel God using me, enabling me. I had to see the evidence by the response from the congregation Sometimes it was a home run. Other times, many times, it was a single. And sometimes it was a complete strikeout. The Sundays when I hit a home run, it was wonderful. It was exhilarating, comforting, reassuring. God was still using me in people's lives. I was reassured with tangible evidence that people were happy with me, admired me, respected me. God must be happy too. But the high wouldn't last. Sunday would turn to Monday, and the quest would begin all over again. I gotta hit it out of the park. It's Monday, and Sunday's coming. I had to keep hitting those home runs to keep proving to myself and to others that I was making a difference for God's kingdom, that I was a good pastor a good leader, and I need Jesus to get me there. I was doing it in his name after all. Jesus was still very much looming large in my heart's gaze, but he had shifted from being the savior and lover of my soul, my source of life and worth, to being my accomplice the heavenly means to my end to be successful, at least not to be a flaming failure in ministry. That was how I felt after I hit a home run. You can imagine the messed up feelings I had when I only hit a single. And I don't even want to tell you the shape I was in when I struck out. I had become a ministry success junkie. And when I couldn't get my fix, my heart was a cauldron of insecurity, fear, tenseness, demandingness, and even anger. 
certainly not joy. And the years came when people weren't as excited about my preaching and my leadership. Discontent started popping up, conflict, the inevitable criticism and doubts about my leadership. And that which I had been seeking for reassurance of my worth, my value, my identity, was getting harder and harder to find. Big-time depression, self-pity, insecurity, fear, resentment in my heart was the result. And I eventually burned out and resigned from my role as pastor. So that's when we came to Orlando in 2010. Why Orlando? My brother was here. He said, we got a spare room. You're welcome to come here till you see what's next. And so that's what we did. We literally had nothing else. Ministry had been my whole life and my identity had been so wrapped up in that. So when it was gone, I didn't know who I was. Looking back now, I feel like God had to do some major demolition in my life in order to begin his makeover. He had to remove me from all my ministry doing so I could come back to him as the helpless, needy, nothing to offer child that I always was and am. When I came to Orlando, I couldn't find a job. I was 50-plus years old. That was terrifying, filling out a resume at that age. But I ended up working at a Chick-fil-A, sweeping the floors and taking out the trash. My wife and I also served as janitors in a church here in town who took us in and paid for me to get counseling. <laughs> I felt invisible. Where was my sense of worth now? I began to see how I had feasted on the admiration and respect of others for my worth. I had never really saw myself as proud, but I realized I really was no different than the Pharisees whom Jesus identified as those who loved the greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats at the, the seats of honor at the gatherings. I saw myself in a new light. It wasn't very pretty. How so full of myself I had been. But God has been good. Eight months after coming to Orlando, I had an interview for an hourly part-time role in human resources, of all things, with pioneers. And God was gracious, and uh, I got the job. And a couple of months later, my wife, Rosemary, also got a job at Pioneers. And we've been with Pioneers now for going on 12 years. And it's been a wonderful setting for us to regroup and heal. We love our work and we love our church. Where would we be? Where would any of us be without God's steadfast, unshakable love? and his relentless, sometimes ruthless commitment to form Jesus in us. I guess what I'd like to leave with you today is 
Beware of joy in ministry becoming primary in your heart's gaze as you pursue ministry in his name. And you might be thinking, I'm not in a ministry, so I don't see how this applies to me. But again, please remember, ministry is that which you and I do arising out of and driven by our followership of Jesus. Ministry is not limited to those who are involved in vocational service. Colossians 3 tells us, whatever we do in word or deed, we are to do it all in the name of Jesus. In other words, if we're doing what we're doing, led by Jesus, depending on Jesus, and out of love for Jesus and worship to Jesus, it's in his name and it's ministry. Our concern is to be about what he is about in the extension of his kingdom. If he's led us to be an accountant, we're going to crunch those numbers for his glory and be the very best accountant we can be. And we're going to be salt and light among those people who, with whom we work, loving them in Jesus' name. Whether it's crunching numbers or programming a computer or constructing a house or teaching children about the Bible or raising kids as a loving mom and sharing the love of Jesus with your neighbor, offering a cup of water in Jesus' name, that is ministry. There is no sacred and secular division here. There's no clergy and laity here. The warning is for all of us. We dare not let our doing for Jesus become primary in our heart's gaze. Of course we should rejoice in ministry success. When God shows up, we should celebrate. But joy in ministry, joy in achievement for Jesus, joy from the success we experience as we follow him in whatever setting that may be, dare not become the ground of your and my fulfillment. It dare not be the source of our worth and value because the path of Jesus includes the ministry highs, but it also very much will include the ministry lows. Over and over, Jesus kept telling the disciples of his impending rejection, betrayal, and humiliation. Right in the context of this text, in the chapter before, in, in Luke 9, 43 and 44, in, in the setting where he's doing mighty works and the crowds are marveling at these mighty works before them and the disciples, he warns the disciples, let these words sink into your ears, he said. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. Over and over, he warned them that the path he was taking would lead to rejection, betrayal, and humiliation, the cross. He told them over and over, if you're going to follow me, this is ahead for you too. But they weren't getting it. They didn't want to see it. They were afraid to see it, just like me. God's way of victory is through defeat. God's path up is oftentimes down. 
The path that Jesus followed to ministry success passed right through the middle of failure, rejection, betrayal, abandonment, humiliation, the cross. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, if we're going to run this race with endurance, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus, not on the ministry accolades nor the ministry flops or our screw-ups. If we're going to run with endurance, the ministry driver comes from riveted focus on the one who has run it before us and awaits us at the finish line. He is the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Neither the ministry highs nor the ministry lows define us. Thank God. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. What is the unshakable ground of our worth? Jesus loves me, this I know. What is that which sustains us and keeps us on track through the ministry highs of success and the ministry lows of failure? My food is to do the will of him who sent me. What is the driving ambition of our heart? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death. As we come to our communion time, I'd like us to consider Paul's words in Philippians 2. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility, in lowliness of mind, literally it's the Greek, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. The old King James has, but made himself of no reputation. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So as we partake the bread, let's remember Jesus emptying himself, his making himself of no reputation, his humbling himself to the point of death, his broken body given and surrendered to the Father for you and for me. And as we take the cup, we think on his blood shed for us, for all our sin, all our pride, all our selfish ambition, all our empty conceit, 
all our failures to perform, all our posturing, all our hiding, all our secret shame. His blood shed for us washes it all away. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Go in peace.